Welcome to the 12th episode of The Brilliant. many of us spend much of our time feeling dull, stultified, numb. Much of what we do is compulsory or routine. It stems from the things we like least about ourselves, and often we feel weak. We wait and wait for the end of our shift, for when we can go to bed and end the day, for the weekend or the vacation, or for the fix from the bottle, the sugar, or the Netflix. The hum of electronics, the drivel of advertisements and news, and sometimes even the tiresome small talk among those we call our friends coalesce into a drone that, at times, seems to drown out any other possibility. We are told we've arrived. The end of history, the land of the free, the best of all possible worlds. But some of us feel, deeply and undeniably, that a different life is possible. We know this possibility in our flesh, we have felt moments of ecstasy, joy, and freedom that are burnt so indelibly into our consciousness as to preclude any doubt. We call these moments, and the people who have felt them, the brilliant, because they are glorious to feel and yet dangerous to know, for they beckon us to a lifeway of passion that is not easily slaked by a world that rewards torpor. The Brilliant Podcast is an effort to share those moments and to foster them tell stories and explore ideas in a way that stokes our passions and reminds us that a world of ecstasy and mystery lies buried, but alive, beneath the malaise and drudge that tries daily to convince us that it is all that it has ever been or could be. So I guess uh, here we are, episode 12. We're now in the thick of it, meaning that... um uh, episodes are coming out the week after they uh, have been recorded. This is the 13th of November, so this will definitely um, be back at all of you uh, early next week. And um, The gap of alienation is closing. Exactly. Soon we will become one. <laughs> and uh, and I, I, I don't know why, but I, I find the term torpor to be really funny. Every time you Everyone say it, laughs. Every time I do my <laughs> intro, and it's really difficult for me not to start laughing. Torpor, torpor. So, anyways, so this episode we're going to focus a lot on the really interesting feedback we're getting. say you know i've been doing the internet for uh, at least 20 years and this from from a from an effort to feedback uh ratio um doing a podcast has been the the most has been the the, the most i guess we would just say uh, i guess you'd, you'd experienced this before but we just continue to get really interesting questions and 
and they're so interesting that I want to talk about them here. Yeah, yeah. So please, by all means, keep asking these questions and making these counter arguments because it's great for us, and we're trying to be good about keeping up and getting back to people quickly. If we haven't gotten back to you yet, it will happen soon. I'll probably actually consign myself to email world just after we do this recording. So, um, yeah, should we start with one of the emails we got about race? Yeah, so uh, just just so you're prepared, we're going to talk a little bit about um, race. We're going to talk a little bit about coming of age. And then we're going to talk about capitalization. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to start out, uh, I'll, I'll read the, the, the question and then we'll dig into it a little bit. One topic I'd be curious to hear you explore further would be race. I've been interested in some of your passing comments about Black Lives Matter, about the insistence on supporting black leadership in the movement, and some of your brief comments on Race Trader, a publication I'm not super familiar with. And if that's not something you're interested in exploring, do you have any recommendations for texts that have helped shape your thinking on race, racism, or at least on uh, a post-left nihilist take on race and racism? Uh... So, yeah. yeah, if I can just jump in, if for those who aren't aware, we I think it was maybe three or four episodes ago, I made some comments about Black Lives Matter and how I think maybe we were t- talking about just the, the local anarchist yeah. f- thoughts about race, and I was basically complaining about um, what I saw as this very shallow, very sort of uh, um, more or less nationalistic sort of takes on race, and and I complained about them in passing, but we didn't get into it at all, so very reasonable for this person to bring it up. And uh, I guess this has been a project that I've been associated with for a long time. Um, I'm not going to talk about the biography first, uh, stuff first, or or what's happening in the Bay. I'll talk a, a, a little bit about my own perspective first, and then go from there. Almost 20 years ago, maybe 17 years ago, Uh, I wrote a piece called uh, A Movement is the Last Thing People of Color Need, Non-Western, Non-European Anarchism. And the the thesis was basically that there's a a concept that we'll basically call Western thought. And I think that that's the term that I used then uh, to refer to to the European uh, Enlightenment story. And at that time, what I was trying to get at was, was the idea that that the fact that anarchism is framed, you know, by Kropotkin, Bakunin, and uh, other bearded dead people, and not by my grandma sitting at the kitchen table, is uh, it sort of speaks to one of the major limitations to anarchism in North America and in general. In other words, uh, from my perspective, North Americans are never going to become enamored by a quote-unquote European perspective. And I also make make the assertion that um, that the land carries a sort of spiritual momentum of its own. So both of those perspectives aren't necessarily ones that you'd hear me say today, although I I still agree with what I said in the past. But um, uh, but what it means is that conversations about race for me begin, for lack of better language, from an indigenous perspective, rather than from a perspective that wants to talk about race. Because in North America, in my perspe- in my opinion, uh, when you say that you're going to ha- want to have a conversation about race, what you really mean is that you want to have a conversation about white people and black people. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so my thinking and my experience 
is not in that conversation. I don't have a lot to say about white people and black people other than um, that I kind of agree with a lot of what people say who are anarchistic, but mostly I find the, the emphasis of the conversation to be misplaced. Um, so in the context of talking about Black Lives Matter and revolutionary leadership, um, that conversation is almost, you know, it is entirely ensconced in the white versus black conversation. And, um, <clears throat> and so, so I guess it's just important to say that there are a lot of different perspectives. You know, there's immigrant perspectives from a lot of other parts of the world than just Africa. Uh, there are also immigrant experiences from Africa that are not the same as, uh, the history of slavery. And, um, uh, in a later piece of writing, I sort of eschewed the term uh, people of color for kind of a similar reason that, at least here in the Bay, you're seeing a lot of people eschew the, the terminology also, which is because people of color represents a, an aggregate that more or less has almost no unity or very few things in common. Yeah, and it's weirdly importing the sort of colonial social enemy rhetoric, which is just anything that's not white is this other thing, and is talked about in a more or less homogeneous way. Right. And and so um, for me to speak about race would be to speak about my upbringing a little bit. And that is to say that I grew up in a Midwestern city. And one of the major conflicts, social conflicts that was talked about in my community of natives was, um, and so this is rural, this is poor, this is, um, you know, unlanded people living in a city and most of what people talked about were were what services the government could provide us and that conversation almost always in the context of the 1970s was about fighting for budgets um i had a yeah i my family uh were union members who worked for the city and they and they uh, many of them were involved in involved in tribal politics and by and large their conversations were about um, who got funding, why they got funding, and so that conflict, again, you know, in from where I where I lived, was about um, uh, black versus white versus red. In other words, natives were very focused on the fact that they um, were fighting for with black people for the attention of the city, the state, and the federal bureaucrats who were dispersing money. And so I very much lived in a situation where white versus black politics overshadowed all um, other conversations. So clearly that's a really different perspective than most people have on race, on identity, on whatever, just you know, how to talk about these topics. So so I tend not to, to go here because so few people sort of understand or share the experience. But it it does mean that, that for me, um, I, I have never been particularly enamored by just talking about white people and black people. And, um, and then, so then to bring this into a modern era, we live in the Bay Area where, uh, to, to put it as delicately as possible, that's all the conversation that radicals seem to want to have in the context of the Bay Area, which is about white people and black people. Yeah, and I suppose to give my story, it would start as any reasonable story about me does as being a 
young boy in suburban Ohio that uh, spent a lot of time reading books that were too complicated for me to really understand when I was that age, and my inculcation with race theory, such as it was then, was actually largely a reaction against growing up in the very explicitly racist household that I grew up in, where my father told me one of my earliest memories is being maybe age four or five and having my father give a really long-winded rant about how um, once I get older I'm going to realize that he's right, that uh, white people are more highly evolved and that uh, African people are in so many ways primitive and that this can be demonstrated biologically and I was putting my hands over my ears and crying and telling him he was wrong and I didn't know why he was saying these things and then locking myself in my room and having other conversations like his saying that uh, the American Indian genocide is just the inevitable result of a superior culture coming into contact with an inferior one and a lot of the conversations went like that and so my political development then was you know being this really go-hard liberal that was trying to react against my family and demonstrate to them why they were wrong, both in arguments with them and with the way that I lived. And that was, I'd say, even up until up until I came into contact with more explicitly anarchist thinking and writing, I, that was mostly how I thought about it. And I was, uh, you know, surprised to see that far too many radicals, especially in this area, are mostly interested in racial politics of sort of redistributing commodities and redistributing wealth such as to, you know in, in a weird sort of reparations way of in, then we're going to absolve our guilt or this idea that you, you can quote-unquote work on your shit to the point that, that somehow maybe you could stop being racist or at least you have to keep trying your entire life to stop feeling that way which is not very exciting to me and even though there are many things that I don't like that he says, I do agree with, right? I find at least some affinity with the statements of Frank Wilderson that you know, because of socialization, it might be the case that um, I will always have racist <coughs> thoughts and orientation and that having that be a starting point rather than the starting point being to work on one shit. Yeah, I, I, I've, uh, I feel like that concept was popular some time ago. Working on your shit? No, the the idea that um, that a lot of the assertions that seem to end conversations, uh -huh. so like you're fucked up because you're a racist. Uh -huh. um, uh, yeah, I guess I've I've just assumed for a long time that that uh, this conversation should begin there. Mm -hmm. in, uh, in other words, Rather that than there. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but but mostly in our context, in the context of the Bay Area radical milieu. The reason that you call race someone a racist is sort of a time management exercise. Basically, <laughs> says because you are racist, even though I am also, and everyone I know is also. But the fact that I'm assigning you this attribute means that I no longer have to have to deal with you. Mm -hmm. There's no social responsibility mm -hmm. to you. Yeah, yeah, and I don't. I definitely don't have to have my ideas challenged by you. There's no reason that you have to take up any intellectual space in my life either. Well, I think this is this is an important place to address the sort of vague criticism we're getting from a, a variety of people, which is this, pro, like, is our project an intellectual project? Oh, yeah. Or is it something else? Because I feel like this right here is maybe a place where we disagree. Um, 
or to put it maybe more bluntly, uh, a conversation about race isn't one where being challenged on your ideas is pertinent. Can you talk about that? Well, I, I guess because you, you don't see that it can go anywhere, or for sure. Uh-huh. But so so for instance, in if racism is code for talking about whites and blacks, uh-huh. rather than right when when we think of the term racism, we think of this really broad Martin Luther King, you know. Red, yellow, white, black, uh, dancing on the til- hilltop, working out their issues. But in in the real politique of the term racism, racism is about black, white people, and black people. Mm-hmm. And so, if that's the case in this country, in this country, yeah, yeah I mean, in if in most people's experience of what race uh, race conversations look like on the ground, it's mostly about white people and black people. And um, so, I'm losing my train of thought here, which is we're talking about people criticizing us for being intellectual right. challenging ideas so I'm not uh, if I'm not interested in that conversation white people and black people mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that I'm, I'm not interested in talking about the conversation about race but I'm interested in talking about the complexity of the fact that identity and real logistics and real politique and ideas are all in a sort of slurry that almost entirely gets ignored because it's sort of underground Rather than white and black people, which are above ground, mm-hmm. and so I'm absolutely interested in this in this subterranean conversation. I'm, and I feel like the other conversation is one about sensationalism, and about you know the difference between uh, social cachet. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a variety of sort of like nasty names I could call the the, the first conversation, but I don't want to do it because I don't want to say that people want to talk about racism in the way in which it's actually talked about. Like, they have something that's worth talking about. Sure. But it's... But I'm just... I just don't have a, a great deal of interest in it. Mm-hmm. And and let's give an example. I'm still searching for the point where we disagree. Well, we disagree because, to me, it's not about ideas. This isn't an idea conversation. Mm-hmm. This is more, much more about, like, how do you identify real politique? Where does real politique live compared to ideas? And, and you know, sort of like ideas totally suffer, <laughs> mm-hmm. and so, so to to sort of stand on this on the sideline, especially as a white man, mm-hmm. um, and say, why can't we talk about real ideas? Basically, puts you like that's some honky shit. Is basically that is a, a, a digest of my experiences when I first moved here. <laughs> <laughs> no, totally, and that's yeah. So. Uh, so what I'm saying is something a little different, which, while others might identify me as a honky white man, I'm I'm definitely not saying that like my ideas should be respected or or that any of the of, of the players in this whole conversation should should pay attention to me. But that said, last year I wrote a uh, uh, a blog piece that basically talked about the fact that anarchism has been very confused in the Bay Area for 25 years, specifically because. Maoism is was a very vibrant political tendency in the Bay from the 60s to the 80s, and part of their attempt to get out of the 80s and still be a vibrant tendency involved recruiting anarchists. And so a lot of anarchists today in the Bay Area, like there's been a limited success by Maoists, or maybe more, um, but there's definitely been a, a success in conflating Maoist project with anarchist project for, yeah. in a lot of people's minds. So I sort of said that out loud, and as a result, sort of a, 
a well-known political actor who in the in the East Bay came to our reading group and he had, hadn't really read the piece but he did sort of come and declare that by writing the piece I was a racist and I was contributing to the oppression of him or something um, but really what it turned into was a sort of performance act where four different players uh, perform different roles in in what modern race conversations look like um, one one role that was played was a white ally role who said that if you want to show solidarity to black people you need to shut up and mm -hmm. let them take leadership yep. the I already re referred to the third role um, sorry the third role was someone who just stood in the chairs and and chanted at us um, and they they basically chanted something along the lines that we were we were genociders uh -huh. something about you know uh, for 500 years and we're not going to take it anymore uh -huh. and then the, the fourth person sort of played good cop and was like I'm sure we can find a middle ground yeah and um, it's funny because I know who all these people are <laughs> <But> yeah. <laughs> yes you do uh, um, and so to me, this isn't this, there's nothing about ideas in this conversation, right? This is about how do you, how do you control the conversation? How do you, um, how do you force people to your position without talking about ideas? Mm -hmm. Because as soon as it became a conversation of ideas, I mean, they hadn't even read the piece. They couldn't actually, you know, they could take a couple poll quotes that they, that they'd been told by a fifth person who sort of told them to, to come to our, uh, study group in the first place, but but basically, they hadn't done any processing work on their own. They just came because they all knew how to p perform their particular roles in the situation. And again, I feel like I've lost my train of thought on the question. Well, so I mean, the framing is often more important than the actual discourse. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, shall we... Move on? Move on. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Okay. So there were... Okay, so some other feedback we got were from two bloggers... Um, one goes by the name Bennett Freeman at a blog called Consentient, and another by Antito Severano at a blog of the same name. And I do, well, I'm sure that one of them does not. I don't know that either of them would call themselves anarchists, but they have some ideas that anarchists would feel affinity for. They have some ideas that most anarchists would definitely not have affinity for, would probably be repulsed by. And they recently started a podcast they're calling The Unterrified, and they evaluated this and other podcasts. and. I bring this up because they had occasion to say that really my first album was my best work, and ever since then it's been downhill, <laughs> by which I mean they said Free Radical Radio was more exciting, engaging than The Brilliant is, and yeah, I guess, Why? The, yeah, so this is a, a sort of self-reflective moment, because they said that Rydra and I were really working through the ideas together, you could see that we were coming to grips with things for the first time that we had a kind of chemistry we were you could see episode to episode how we were changing and trying to to work through things and it makes a lot of sense at that at the time that that podcast began um up until probably the through its first year year and a half was probably the time in my life that my ideas were changing the most quickly and i was trying to work through a lot of things because i for the first time was immersed in conversation about ideas, reading about them, and having to sort of figure out where I stood on a lot of things. And 
I guess you could say that that maybe has slowed down a bit for me, and that I am coming to hold and occupy certain positions more than I was at that time, and so maybe that is less interesting. It's less interesting maybe to to hear someone. I wouldn't. It would be way too far to say feeling like I figured it out or I've arrived at how I'm going to feel, but I am certainly more that way than I was. And you know, you had Ryder and I were very much intellectual peers and and coming to a lot of things at the the first time. Whereas now I'm operating opposite someone who's ossified and crystallized and yeah. is mature. Really has <laughs> has no has no space for movement or uh, a new idea at all. Um, an interesting thing also was that they called this podcast Artsy Fartsy, which I can safely say is the f- absolutely the first time that anyone has applied that adjective to me or anything that I've ever done, and I don't know that it will ever happen again. Uh, yeah, what's funny about that is uh, it's not the first time I've been accused of being Artsy Fartsy, okay. um, but... Uh, but it's because we have a sound engineer who does music. Yeah. And and so like and creates this soundscape. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. I, I don't like it because it's so artsy fartsy. I don't like the artsy fartsy thing. I, I think I hate right. so. Exactly. And so so Free Radical Radio sort of lives in in the mediocrity of your bad engineering talents. And because we actually have someone who who adds music to this. Well, I mean, especially early days for radical radio, it's just recording on my laptop, and and I have to spend like two fucking hours every time editing. It. <laughs> so. Actually, the uh, Roy said that they spend two to three hours now. Right, but his product <laughs> is uh, is Demonst- a fancy polished thing, <laughs> demonstrably better. Yeah. Um, the other criticism that maybe is is more interesting for us to talk about is that they were saying it. That unlike Free Radical Radio, this show doesn't give the listener something to go on. It doesn't feel like there's anything actionable coming out. It doesn't feel like it's working towards some kind of lived... Um, I, I mean, I guess I can't say anarchist because these guys wouldn't call themselves that, but some sort of lived, liberated existence. That's interesting. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'll, let's speak to that for a minute because I, I feel like one of the... Um, I mean, perhaps that just speaks to the fact that they felt like they were in a, the same conversation as you were in Free Radical Radio. I think maybe that's part of it. Yeah. But, but you know, let's let's put our cards on the table. Um, you know, we're here at the Little Black Cart compound, both oh. of us totally involved in the Little Black Cart project, and uh, and the brilliant is sort of like a a sidebar to the to the LBC project, but. Mm-hmm. By and large, what we're doing with our energy and our time is is you know a real is a real thing. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe it's that it doesn't feel inviting in the same way. Where I with free radical radio is like, oh, we had like this interaction with this person, and we couldn't believe that they thought this, and like, why would someone in the Bay Area be doing this? And this is what we're doing instead. And with yeah. this, it's more like we're kind of. But but I mean, just to say it explicitly. We are not just because of LBC, but because of the Brilliant and because of other projects we're involved in. We are actively involved in the media in the project of telling anarchist stories. Mm-hmm. And and as much as I I would wish to to be doing it more generally, in other words, to to differentiate the Brilliant as being a project that's bigger than anarchism. Mostly, what you know, my daily life involves the anarchist project mm-hmm. and the anarchist space, and. Um, 
and that is absolutely a project that other people are invited to. Yeah. yeah. And I'm totally reliant on other people for, for there to be an anarchist space. See, so if you have hours free and you have a reasonably good precision, come on down to Little Black Heart and make some books. <laughs> well, or smash something and, and you know, tell the story about it. Or um, uh, last night I, I went to the, um, uh, to the first of, I guess, three, event, three events that are happening here in the Bay Area around this book, Dixie Be Damned, which is a book by a different publisher than us. Uh, the publisher that will not be named, and uh, and it's basically a book about insurrections in the South, and and it was sort of like uh, it was a very warm room, lots of friendliness, and people really wanting to hear these exciting stories about uh, insurrection in the South of the country. Um, so I think that you know again I'm we're lucky enough to live in the Bay Area where there's always something going on. We have not tended to talk about those those yeah. particular things, yeah. um, and and I don't necessarily want to, but I also recognize that I don't want to sound like I'm a, a robot that's just grappling with ideas. I, I think that, that there's another way of talking about what's a life worth living in a place where a lot of people are terrible, and a lot of the, the ideas that people want to talk about are terrible. Um, for instance, this weekend there's going to be a... a a book fair called the Howard Zinn Book Fair, which on the one hand sounds great, like the idea of people's history, you know, happening in a in a book fair sounds fantastic. But then you look at the actual workshops and you look at sort of the project of the people behind behind the event, and it looks terrible. And last year we did go to the event and table to the event, and it was terrible. And um, and so so I guess part of the part of the question, or broadly, is what does it look like? To, um, to have a priority, and in our case, our shared priority is, is to talk about these ideas. And, and for me, the ideas are the part that's alive. And um, yeah, yeah. I think I just want to close by saying I, I was getting a bit caught up with my words, and I think what I was trying to get at before was that free radical radio felt like people who were authentically new to the ideas, excited grappling with them, wanting to share, and that perhaps this podcast, the affect that people feel from it is we know better and are above it all, and that there's a lot of making fun of people, and maybe it seems like grandstanding. Yeah, I mean, that's a strange word, because I think that if we were to be a fly on the wall on any set of people's conversations about this, that, or the other, I think that some of what we're communicating with each other is true. I mean, part of the thing that is um, a parallel between this podcast and and uh, your last podcast is that um, we're getting to know each other. Mm-hmm. Like we don't, we haven't had most of the conversations that we're having here on air before at all. That's true. And so, um, you know, sometimes I'm speaking more stilted than I normally would. I would normally be telling more jokes, and the reason that I don't is because I don't want to. Uh, uh, the listener to have a bad uh, feeling about how mean I am. Um, I mean, it's appropriate to know that I am mean and 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 I I have boundaries. But mostly, I'm trying to have this new conversation with you yeah. and a new conversation f- with an audience that at least makes me seem more human than I am in writing, mm-hmm. or more human than I am when you can't see me behind a project that I'm involved in. Mm-hmm. 
Anyways, yeah, that was great feedback. Oh, yeah, before we uh, uh, totally get off the consentient um, people, I do want to respond to... Uh, they, they basically give this long reading and then uh, and then some critique and some, like, uh, holla sort of, <laughs> sort of behavior goes on in this. Shout some shout-outs, yeah. Um, so, so they engage with uh, my indigenous anarchism piece, and uh, their blog is at uh, consentient.wordpress.com. Anyways, uh, point five. If anarchists are not able to apply the principles of self-determination to the fact that real living and breathing do identify with racial and cultural categories, and that this identification has consequence in terms of dealing with other people, can we be shocked that native people, or so-called people of color, lack any interest in cohabitation? So that's a quote from my article. And the response says, If anarchists want to reify pure geist and lend sanction to forms of shared delusion, such as racial and cultural categories, they should expect their projects mount to complete failure. Reference to acceptance of an obsession with non-reference is a downward spiral from which meaningful interaction cannot recover. The people that have those identities are not welcome in any consentient community I ever form. I'm an African, you say? Then why don't you go and live in Africa, is my reply. One of the criteria by which I judge whether someone is of like enough mind to myself is that they have dispensed with meaningless labels. Um, so, most of, their, most of their dialogue with the piece is, is pretty friendly and... Uh, you know, I guess you'd say we're generally on the same page or something. Uh, this is a piece where they're sort of the most hostile. Um, and, you know, in North America, if they said this, they would be chased out of the room. I mean, the the idea of saying if, uh, you know, that, that if someone were to say that they are, they're African-American, that they should, they, they should be chased back to Africa. In, oh, okay. in the U.S. context, that's that's considered one of the most reactionary things you could possibly say about oh. this particular topic. Um, separate from that, though, uh, I guess th- what they're saying here kind of is at the heart of what my furtive attempts at this topic were in the in the late '90s in in my uh, towards a non-European anarchism, um, which is basically to say that this all this uh, reify and geist. Um, stuff is very much, for to my mind, and definitely to a lot of other people's minds, is part and parcel of like the European project of framing how people even think about themselves and each other, and um, and so the idea that this sort of we'll call it Geistian perspective is in such distinction from the idea that someone might identify themselves instead as a cultural Native American or or you know uh, a mixed race black person. Like the idea that that those ideas are incompatible to to this Geistian is uh, you know it was pretty angry. I, a lot of people would be really livid at at, at this whole uh, framing. Um, for my for my own part, I just prefer my own framing and am not. Um, I, I say this a lot, but I, I don't find there to be any charisma in in this in this way of thinking that this author is. Uh, this reader is performing. Um, maybe you have a friendlier take on it. Well, so I guess I am wondering how you associate 
what he's articulating right there with the with a European perspective, because one, I think, would be very reasonably able to contend that the European perspective actually would be to be a racial realist, to say absolutely there are different categories of people. And they would be orienting that in a different way. They would be orienting it in a narrative of racial supremacy, just like the one that my I was saying that my father related to me when I was a child was would be to say absolutely there are hard and fast racial differences. Well, again, when when we talk about uh, uh, European in this context, Mm -hmm. Europe Europe has a, like, we all can talk a lot about Europe. So we can talk about, you know, the neo-fascist movement rising in Europe. It's a a heterogeneous category. Well, also one that we're all informed about in a way that we're not informed about the difference between an Anishinaabe way of seeing the world and a Lakota way of seeing the world. And we can't do co- compares and contrasts between the, the cultural values that actually are from the, from this place that that, we're, that our feet are on now. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is the important point that I was trying to make in uh, non-European anarchism, which is basically like we're going to talk about the difference between you know the individ the hyper individualism that this that this Geistian perspective takes. And, and compare and contrast it to a more communistic take or a more neoliberal take, mm-hmm. and, and, we're, and we can speak for hours on, on these distinctions. Sure. And, and my point is that that's the problem, mm-hmm. is that I don't know what I don't know. Sure. Or I don't, yeah. And, and I feel betrayed by that. In other words, that's, that's the feeling of genocide, mm-hmm. is when you're betrayed by the fact that you have no knowledge of, of what, what the world looks like. You only have the knowledge of, of what the European world What's looks like. And that's why I don't use that European terminology so often nowadays is because, you know, it's like, I don't want to dwell in the genocide. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes I'm speaking to people who have no frame of reference to even kind of get that point. And so in, instead, I, you know, like, I sort of don't talk about these topics as much as I, as I have in the past. Um so in this in this context, though, I'll just say, if anarchists want to reify per, pure, pure geist and lend sanction to forms of shared delusion, like that's like, even if you were to take the best possible read of that, it it basically says that there's something called pure geist, mm-hmm. and and that reifying it looks like you know referring to culture and or race, quote-unquote, as if it's real. Like... It's another way of undermining other people's values. For sure. It's just doing it in a completely different way. In this very abstract way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, okay. And so, finally, um, we're going to do uh, a performance. <laughs> uh, there was a substantive critique um, and I'm going to read the critique it's mostly pointed at Bellamy, and so Bellamy will have the bulk of the responses to it, but I guess at some point I'll have something to say later on. But I will begin with a performance of what we call this, the capitalization critique. Or the capital critique. Here we go. A friend of mine, Bellamy, down in the San Francisco Bay Area, one of his key things is reification, and how to resist reification, and how to turn into frozen objects when they are not. To thingify 
would be the direct Latin translation. Res means thing. Lately he was saying he was against capitalizing things like machine or technology. Along the lines of reification. That's a way to reify reality. And that's not an anti-authoritarian or healthy way to go. But I wonder. Let's take technology and the idea that there is... Let's take technology and the idea there is that it is everything and nothing. It can mean anything. Don't want to reify. So I'm wondering, don't we have to do that? Take in terms of whatever? Civilization, capitalism, etc.? In other words, or is it, some people think this is the case with technology. That there isn't any technology, as in with a capital T. There are only different technologies with a small t, right? As if there's nothing common under the rubric of technology. You can't generalize. It doesn't do to do that to speak of technology as if it's a thing. You don't do that with other things, capitalism or what have you. But you know, if we're talking about civilization or what have you, do know what it means. There is something in general. There is something you can say. You don't have to be confined to this or that technology. You don't want to generalize about anything. That seems to me to be very debilitating. Because we need to figure out what is involved without being told, don't do that. Maybe more than ever. Why are we in this fix? Why is the nature of these things? Or is there an essence or nature or anything? And I think of domestication, and there is an inner logic to it. Horkheimer and Adorno term, and it has unfolded. It goes forward according to its essence. It's dynamic, it's logic, and it simply has. You can just look at it. You can see the evidence. You can follow it and see how it just keeps going. And the priorities are control, always control, the ethos of control. It depends. It goes deeper and broadly. So to just say we shouldn't capitalize things, what does that actually mean? I think it's very harmful. One can take that too far, obviously. I've written about reification. But you don't just rule out grasping anything. We can't do that. You can't refer to that in a general sense. I don't think, I'm wondering, if some folks wouldn't say that about capitalism, or if they're just picking on technology. But a friend of mine came up with this quote from, and this may have something to do with it, Kamsa, from 100, 200 years ago in North America, quote, White man's words are like so many leaves blown about in a great wind, never touching anything solid, end quote. Maybe that's appropriate here. There is a way of talking about things that never really come to grips with them, never getting down to the analysis or conclusion. You can always say, oh, you never really know what that means, end quote. I don't see that. It's not what's required, if you ask me. Well, I guess if Tecumseh is against me, then I'm just really sunk now. It's hard to come back from that. And uh, I guess I'm going to do my best here to give a lot of words that are like so many leaves blown about in the wind. Um, so this is actually very similar to a few exchanges I had back in the spring, right after the first issue of Black and Green Review 
they had an article in there under the action and response section where they quoted me without actually citing it as being me or contextualizing it very much. And uh, the whole thing it goes into this this kind of takedown of what is perceived as my position um, that I couldn't really fully understand about how somehow critiquing reification means rejecting community while simultaneously being moralistic while also simultaneously somehow meaning that you could just be against anything and anything goes uh, and I guess you just sort of open the door to uh, meaningless critique was their whole thing and there was a particular line in there about grounding and um, I ended up in Free Radical Radio responding by saying that I thought it was an unhealthy backward analysis to say that your grounding has to be in reification and then there was this sort of back and forth with some of the people involved in that project um, and this to me seems like it's coming back to it in a way where the critique was about capitalization, <laughs> as you said, which I believe was about something I said on The Brilliant um, a few episodes ago when we were talking about William Gillis's piece, mm -hmm. and I, I made some kind of offhand comment about how uh, I, that I did think that sometimes technology got talked about in this capital T way. And so the, the critique here is saying we have to reify sometimes, and I actually totally disagree when it comes to analysis. Of course, all of us might reify casually in conversation or in shorthand, like if I say something something about this country, I'm not talking about this country in a literal sense, I'm not talking about the land, I'm not talking about the organisms that live on it, right? Uh, but I'm talking about a, an abstraction, an idea of... So, of so you're a casual is. reifier. I'm a casual reifier. <laughs> but if you're talking about uh, things in, really, in a really careful way and you're really trying to think carefully, I, I don't think that that's necessary and I, I think it might be inevitable in that we're we're really socialized to do it but I think it's certainly you can work on your shit when it comes to this and I think the more we use these abstract terms without reference the more alienated our speech becomes the more as the the bloggers said the more we, we're allowing Geist to come into our thinking and um, yeah I think the idea that somehow we're grounded by creating abstract ideas and following them and we just have to pick the right one, and that it's good to have some kind of transcendental universal category that we adhere to, rather than creating value in our lives moment to moment as individuals is ridiculous. I think the idea that s categories or sets of things are more real or can be understood better than particular things is, is not the case. And I don't see how you could be more grounded in the way that it was being talked about in this exchange than by basing things in actually lived experience, in actual life, and not in um, these presuppositions that are metaphysical presuppositions, or there must be this category technology. Um, I, When it comes to technology specifically, I wasn't trying to say, as the critique said, that it's everything and nothing. I think, obviously, it's something broad, but I wouldn't go so far as to say it's undefinable. I mean, it comes from an ancient Greek word, meaning the study of an art or craft or technique. And I think you can understand machines as the embedding of a technique in a non-human object. Um, and so to me, rather than saying I'm against the study of, of arts, crafts, and technique, a better way of understanding it is saying what are the consequences of 
dehumanizing and automating a given technique? What are the consequences for me? What are they for my social interactions? What are they for my community? What are they for my ecology? And so I would probably be in agreement with the idea that there are many technologies that are bad. It seems obvious to me that we would be better off without things like cars. It seems obvious to me that we would be better off without huge manufacturing. But I don't think it's helpful to have an analysis that says you're somehow against technology as a category. I mean, how are you against heating stones in a fire and pouring water over them to, st to steam vegetables? Are you against you know, having uh, various hand tools? Probably not. And once we have this imprecise category of analysis, it introduces this, these weird metaphysics that I've talked about in the past of seeing the world as a war between giant abstract forces. So when the critic says, don't we do this with other things like civilization? Well, sure, I do use the word civilization. I've used it in podcasts countless times. I've used it in writing that I've done, but I'm doing it in a self-conscious critical way to point out the fact that civilization, I think, consists in reifications, and that's the problem. And I think we can call civilization a set of overlapping, mutually reinforcing reifications and corresponding material infrastructure. So you have the social roles, the collective activity that's organized tightly around time, you have ritual and symbolic culture, you have myths of progress and supremacy, and then you have the agriculture, the urbanity, the resources extraction that goes along with it. So if I talk about civilization in the abstract, it's because I'm trying to point out the fact that it exists in these reifications and the materiality that goes along with that. But I don't think you can do the same with technology. And even though there is, of course, this kind of divinization of technology in this culture, I would call that the ideology of techno-optimism or techno-utopianism. And I don't think that's what's evoked by the word when you hear it. I think when someone says, I'm against technology or we have to start questioning technology, what it calls to mind for me, at least, and I suspect a lot of people, is gadgets like phones and cars and computers. And so I don't find it, I find it to be a misleading and overly vague way of talking about a very real problem. Well, just to be devil's advocate for a minute, what do you think the critic thinks is the better way to go vis-a-vis -a, -vis a uh asserting that they're against technology. Why do I think they're doing it? Or, what, or, what, or what's their argument? What, in other words, what's their argument for their position? Mm -hmm. Well, it seems to be based on this idea that there's an inner logic, and it's meaningful to talk about this thing as an abstract category because it maybe has, in this culture, developed its own kind of weird autonomy in that technological progression seems at this point, I think, to be pretty obviously detached from real human needs and instead proceeds for its own sake in this quasi-religious way where you know everyone's lining up for the next iPhone even though no one really needs it and they know on some level that it's this product of all this horrific uh, slavery happening all over the world, but it, you know there's a sense in which it must go on. Um, I think also that this person is motivated by a nature versus technology metaphysic that they think is important and that they think probably without this you lose the kind of pull or the impetus behind this position that it's meaningful to be for something and against something else and that that motivates action. 
I it, can, I, you know, I disagree with it, but I don't think it's ridiculous. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I really see the similarities between, in this case, technology and and capitalism. In other words, like it seems like a lot of people orient themselves, starting out with an anti-position. I'm, yeah, I'm essentially, I'm anti-technology. That is my priority. That's what my emphasis is. Mm-hmm. That's any conversation I'm going to have is starts there. And similarly, you can say the same thing about capitalism. Many, many people begin, start, end their conversation with, I'm against capitalism. Anti-civilization. And, and I think that people think that that's an example of putting up a flag and saying, like, this is important. This mm-hmm. flag is important. Rally behind this flag. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, you know, not that I like to give my father's generation any credit for anything but but you know you you can imagine the 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 doe the doe eyes that people had and the wetness in their eyes when they first put up their the ecology flag that just has you know either the earth the earth on it or some symbol that represents the earth on yeah. the flag like that feels like a pro Blue orb yeah that's a pro position that's they're 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 at least for something what we're talking about here is that basically politics has become this assertion of which anti-position is the is the strongest or the correct one. Anyways, why don't you finish your? Uh... Well, that, no, I mean that was it to to say basically I I don't think that uh, I I don't take this I guess sort of you might call it like soft anti-reification position of of well it's a bad idea most of the time but maybe not all the time I. I just don't see how it can do anything but be misleading to lend itself to the creation of weird metaphysics to uh, lead one down a religious orientation to obfuscate the issues and again I mean it might in in shorthand I might say something like yeah I'm I have lettuce tendencies and I'm skeptical about technology but if anyone said well what do you mean when you say technology that would then the reified ways of talking would uh, diminish quickly. Yeah. yeah, I think that the the specific semantic uh, problem that they that they overloaded here, I think that that's um, I think it's a phase that everybody goes through. This idea that speaking in terms of capital T and small t technology is important. Like, or to say it differently, the first writing project I did, I totally did this thing that that they're accusing you of, which is that. I tried to overload, like, capital T means the mm-hmm. reified technological thing, and small T is what we do with our little hands. Mm-hmm. But um, but I abandoned it, mostly because nobody understood what I was talking about from the reader's <laughs> perspective, and it just seemed like a, a kind of gimmick that might make sense in a face-to-face conversation. But in general, like, if you're trying to write to, uh, for an audience that you don't know, they, they lose it right away, unless you, yeah... Um, but, it, but I've seen a lot of people do this, for sure. As a matter of fact, one commenter on emails does it all the time, and I, I find it very aggravating because I don't understand what they're getting at. Mm-hmm. Uh, they never capitalize anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing I was going to say, or in the, in the part that really stuck out to me in this, in this rant, um, uh, is a sort of conversation about what does it mean to be a leftist. Mm. So... Just to go through a, a sort of unfair progression, a leftist, by and large, 
thinks about the state. And they think about negotiating with the state, and they think that the real politique is about is about that negotiation. So, the the, the quote that they said was, um, "You can see the evidence, you can follow it, and see how it just keeps going. And the priorities are control, always control. The ethos of control it deepens." And um, this really reminds me of this idea that the state is this force of negation, right? This, the, the, the state is this force of control and, and basically negation in the sense of, you know, it doesn't want you to put up flags of the earth. Or, mm-hmm. and, um, and that anarchists, especially the leftist variety, really gravitate towards this position. And what, I, and, and I guess for me, my reading of the situationists is sort of the second point that I make about like like I sort of accept that that leftist perspective that that, that this is what the role of the state is it's a mm-hmm. it's a viable analysis of the state but then you have to talk about capitalism and the fact that capitalism isn't a force of negation capitalism is a force of creation yeah of yeah. Of, of of persuasion mm-hmm. you know it it wants you to believe mm-hmm. and so so this kind of critique dries up for me because it doesn't seem to understand that the way in which we're controlled effectively, if you're going to use that word, the way in which society is organized, absolutely uh, a central aspect of that is that aspect of persuasion Mm -hmm. and the fact that that we consent to control. So you you, you no longer can call it control. Mm -hmm. You have to call it something else. And then finally, and this this for me is is why actually... Like being bought off by nice things or... But being bought off that nice things are capable of improving our lives, mm-hmm. yeah, sure. Um, and then, and then finally, you know, for me, like, like that that reading of the capitalism and the state that that gets us through the situ- the SI and through the, the ideas of the situationist. And so, what innovations have happened since then? Well, I think that the way in which Foucault was treated in Theory of Bloom is is sort of the next step that talks about the the aspect of what our bodies, how our bodies are involved. In, in this entire conversation, one about persuasion and one about control. And for me, th- these type of criticisms just fall so short because they just don't seem to have to recognize that most of the time we're not being controlled. That's actually not people's daily life. Most, I mean, that it is their daily life and the fact that work is a form of control, of course. But when we're, when we're talking about the, the, the problems of, of radical politics in the 21st century, I feel like you just can't open your mouth without saying that, that there are um, that there's at, at the very least three zones of, of tensions that 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 are relevant here and um, and so to me this 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 idea about arguing about reified words is just a waste of time I just can't even believe that you know we're, we're still doing it mm-hmm. well, thank you for indulging me with some time wasting for several minutes no, I, I mean, I, I think the critique is really interesting and obviously funny, uh, but... Yeah. Well, thank you for listening to episode 12 of The Brilliant, and obviously this was very feedback-oriented, so you now have an incentive to keep contacting us. And I'm your host, Bellamy. I'm Eric Horn, and behind the scenes is Roy Burton, and thank you very much. Mm-hmm.